وزدنا علما برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين So inshallah ta'ala we are going to move on from the introduction that we made in the last class and before that I do apologize for being a little bit late today uh, we are going to inshallah ta'ala uh, continue on from what we did in the in the last class inshallah and that is that we will begin today the tafsir that we're going to study ta'ala now I just had a couple of points before we begin with this tafsir. The first one was, uh, I hope that you are all watching the videos that are released uh, on a weekly basis. So on a weekly basis, we release a video and we provide a link to some books and so on. Uh, a lot of people say that, for example, they might not catch the emails or something like that, but you can still access those videos directly via the kalima website that is kalima.org forward slash module one on there you can find the links to uh, there's a video that was released every week uh, some of the brothers had a, had a question regarding and i answered this in the video but i just want to emphasize it again today regarding the way that we approach the course now we only have two hours in fact less than two hours by the time we you know, get started and everything gets going. We, we have a, you can say, a couple of hours of teaching every week. In that two hours every week of 12 weeks, that's 24 hours worth of teaching time. In fact, it's probably less than that with exams and what have you. It's not possible to cover the content of all of the books from beginning to end. Now, I had two choices when it came to this course. I could have said to you guys that we will cover the book from beginning to end, but we will only do two books in the year. We will cover the book from the first word until the last word, nice and, you know, slowly. But we'll only cover two books in the whole year. In one module, we'll cover one book. In one module, we'll cover another book. And in the whole 12 weeks in Hilya Talib al-Ilm, for example. Even then, there are some things we wouldn't finish. So tafsir al-Sa'di, if we were to do it word by word from beginning of the book to the end of the book, would take us the better part of probably three or four years to finish. So the reality is that we can't possibly cover all of the material. So my choice was to select parts of various books to teach you. Instead of teaching you the whole book, to select parts now I've tried to make a judgment as to which parts are important for you to do with the teacher and which parts you can read at home. So we kind of cover the methodology of the book and give you a key with which you can then go back to the book and read it in your own time. That is the way that I suggest we approach the course. Now I'm not suggesting it's the best way. Uh, in fact, whether it's the best way or not, that is a, something that I'm yet to decide, to be honest with you. Um, I've seen people do it different ways. Our teachers who taught me, uh, they did it in different ways. Some of them said, we will finish the whole book no matter what. It's more valuable to finish a whole book from beginning to end than it is for you to take pieces. And some people said, no, it's better that you cover all of the topics of Islam and just let you understand how the book works and then be able to approach the book in your own time knowing that you have a teacher that you can come and ask when you don't understand something. 
Now, I'm not going to promise you that the way I've chosen is the best. And in fact, I'm quite willing to change it in module two. If I think that it didn't work, then in module two, we will do it a different way. I have no issue with that. I mean, I'm quite willing to change the to change the way that we are doing it. But right now in module one, the idea is we have now the topic of tafsir. We have three weeks left. In those three weeks, bearing in mind that there's going to be an exam, so that's really two and a half weeks. In that two and a half weeks, we have to cover enough of tafsir that you guys feel confident in approaching tafsir at the level you are at right now. Now, I think we can do that with the tafsir of two surahs, or not even two surahs, but one surah and a part of one surah. So we're going to do the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha, and we're going to do the tafsir of a part of Surah Al-Ma'idah. Now, the reason I chose Surah Al-Fatiha and Surah Al-Ma'idah is for a number of reasons. Number one, Surah Al-Fatiha is Ummul Quran. It summarizes the entire meaning of the Quran in it. And that's why it's called Ummul Quran, because the Umm of something is that which everything returns to it. And it's the origin to which everything returns. You know, so if you have an object, something, and it returns to an origin, it has a, a source, then you call that source Al-Umm, the mother. And this word um in Arabic is more general, it's more uh, comprehensive than English. In English, we only use mother for, you know, usually we use mother for the person who gave birth to you. And sometimes you might say like the mother of all evil, like in that sense. But the word um in Arabic is more general. The origin and the source of something is called the um. And so because all of the meanings in the Qur'an are summarized within Surah Al-Fatiha, so it's called Umm Al-Qur'an. So to a certain extent, if you understand Surah Al-Fatiha, you've given yourself a good head start in understanding the whole of the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an doesn't go outside of the meanings found within Surah Al-Fatiha in general. And in a comprehensive sense, uh, the Qur'an doesn't go outside of those essential messages that are given to us in Surah Al-Fatiha. And the rest of the Quran is a detailed explanation of the meanings within this Surah. So that's the first reason for Surah Al-Fatiha. Surah Al-Fatiha is Makkiya. It's a Surah that was revealed in Makkah. And the reason we wanted to deal with a Surah which is revealed in Makkah is the Surahs revealed in Makkah tend to be Surahs that focus upon Aqeedah in general and that shows you the falsehood and the uh, you know the, the error of the one who says that there is no Aqeedah in the Quran all of the surahs that were revealed in Makkah all of them have nothing but Aqeedah in them and there are very few rules and regulations and halal and haram in the surahs that were revealed in Makkah very few the surahs revealed in Makkah are about purifying your belief about recognizing who Allah is about worshiping Allah alone these are the that, that is the essence of the message of the surahs that were revealed in Makkah and you know that the salah was not revealed upon any the Muslims and the Muslims had virtually nothing in the means of halal and haram for certainly the first probably 10 years, 7 years, 8 years, 
the Muslims had very little in the way of halal and haram that was revealed to them. The vast majority was revealed about worshipping Allah and avoiding everything which is worshipped besides Him. And this is a theme you see, rahmatullah, again and again in the surahs that were revealed in Mecca. As for the surahs that were revealed in Medina, and we're going to take Surah Al-Ma'idah as an example, they are full of ahkam, they're full of the halal and the haram. Do this and don't do this. This is halal and this is haram. You can eat this and you can't eat this. You can drink this, but you can't drink this. You can do this, but you can't do this. This is a marriage that is allowed. This is a marriage that is not allowed. The hijab, the zakah, all of them were revealed in Medina. Because we begin by purifying a person's belief, a person's worship of Allah, knowing Allah and worshiping Him. This is what the Prophet ﷺ began with. For at least the first eight, maybe ten years of his prophethood were spent teaching the people the basics of Iman, the basics of belief, the basics of Tawheed. And so it makes sense if you want to give people a, an introduction to tafsir that you should take a piece of this and a piece of this. Because if we did the tafsir of the, the surahs that are makkiya or the surahs that are very short, for example, the surahs that were revealed at the end of the Qur'an, then in general, we're going to get a lot about aqidah and tawheed and belief and iman, but we're not going to get a lot about dealing with the rulings in the Qur'an and the halal and the haram. And the ikhtilaf, the disagreement in the rulings is much, much more than the disagreement in the issues of Tawheed. In fact, in Aqidah, the companions virtually did not disagree in anything except a handful of very small issues. For example, did the Prophet ﷺ see Allah or not? What is the meaning of the saq, the shin in the Qur'an? And there are like a handful, you can probably count them on one hand, of issues of Iman in which the companions had any disagreement at all. However, in the issues of Fiqh, the disagreement becomes more. So it makes sense to start with a surah which is Makkiyah and which comprehensively covers the meanings of the Makkan surahs in the Quran. And this makes sense to cover Surah Al-Fatiha. Also, from the point of view of importance, Surah Al-Fatiha is more important than any of the other surahs in the Qur'an. And that's clear for a number of reasons. First of all, that we read it as an obligation in every raka'ah, in every prayer that we pray. We read Surah Al-Fatiha. And the Prophet ﷺ said, لَا صَلَاةَ لِمَنْ لَمْ يَقْرَأْ بِفَاتِحَةِ الْكِتَابِ There is no prayer for the one who does not read Surah Al-Fatiha. So it's very important in that way. Also, it is the greatest surah in the Qur'an. What is the greatest ayah in the Qur'an? The greatest ayah in the Qur'an is Ayatul Kursi. Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayyul qayyum. This is the greatest ayah. Ayah number 255 from Surah Al-Baqarah. And just to give you an idea of how significant this ayah is, I have an explanation of this ayah by our Shaykh Abdul Razak al-Abbad. The Shaykh Hafizahullah, he explained the ayah in, and I'm not going to give the exact number because I can't recall, but over 20, maybe nearly 30 one-hour sittings to explain ayat al-kursi only. 
The reality is the ayah contains a huge amount of, of benefit. And likewise, Surah Al-Fatiha, we could explain in 28 sittings. Yani it's huge. But we just as a summary of a tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha today, from tafsir al-Sa'di, first of all, and then we will also move on after tafsir al-Sa'di to Ibn Kathir. Because again, the contrast between the two, al-Sa'di is going to be much more summarized and more sort of to the point. And Ibn Kathir is going to give you a lot more information and knowledge, but in a lot more sort of scattered way, a lot more wide sort of range of information. So you learn how to deal with the two books. To the best of my knowledge, Surah Al-Fatiha in Tafsir Al-Sa'di is part of the Dar al-Salam print, which is just the last two juz of the, of the Quran and Surah Al-Fatiha, to the best of my knowledge. So I believe that also another reason why I chose Surah Al-Fatiha is because it's easier. The Tafsir Al-Sa'di that is translated in the US, which is the whole of the Tafsir, is harder for you to get. And it's quite expensive, the book. I think they're charging something like $40 a volume. Or, so it's quite expensive to buy the book. But this small one from Dar al-Salam, to the best of my knowledge, it contains Surah Al-Fatiha. So that will also make it easier for people to access. So inshallah, we're going to sort of cover a bit of this and a bit of that. But today, inshallah, ta'ala, the aim is to cover the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha from the tafsir of Imam al-Sa'di, Rahimahullah ta'ala. And as we said, Imam al-Sa'di is relatively contemporary as a scholar. That means that he lived not in the generation of our teachers, but the generation of our teachers' teachers, or one above that. So you're talking about, uh, as we said, I think he died in 1370-something, eight or something like that. Rahimahullah ta'ala. So it's relatively contemporary. And that makes it relatively easy to begin with. And as I've said, our Shaykh Abdul Razzaq al-Badr, Hafidhullah, he recommended that this is the tafsir that you should teach to the people when you first teach them tafsir. Because of all of the benefits that it contains. And we talked about the differences and the, the, the manhaj of Ibn Kathir in his tafsir as well last time. So inshallah ta'ala will begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is the first part of the Quran which the scholars mention in their books of tafsir. And the scholars differed as to whether Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha or not. They agreed that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from the Quran without any doubt, without any disagreement among them. Because of the ayah Innahu min Sulaiman wa Innahu Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So there is no doubt that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is part of an ayah in the Quran. But they differed over Surah Al-Fatiha. Is Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha or not? And I think we will cover this more in the, when we read Ibn Kathir, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. In the Mus'haf that we have, the, the, the Mus'haf that is from the riwayah of Hafs and Asim, that the, the Mus'haf that we usually have in the Masjid, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha. And therefore, the last part of Surah Al-Fatiha 
is one ayah. Because there are seven ayat, and the scholars are unanimous in the fact that Surah Al-Fatiha is seven ayat. So if we count Bismillah rahman rahim then it is Bismillah rahman rahim one. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, two. Ar-Rahman rahim three. Maliki Yawmiddin, four. Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'een, five. Ihdina al-Sirat al-Mustaqeem, six. Sirat al-Ladina an'amta alayhim ghayri al-Maddubi alayhim wal-Addalleen, seven. If we don't count Bismillah rahman rahim as an ayah, then we count it as an introduction to the surah, as, a, as a, a word or a phrase or a sentence which introduces every surah in the Quran but one. And it introduces every uh, uh, surah in the Quran except for Surah Al-Bara in the Surah Al-Tawbah. So, if it isn't an ayah from the Quran, or an ayah from, if it isn't an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha, then what is, what, how do we break it into seven ayat? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is one. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, two. Maliki Yawmiddin, three. Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'een, four. Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, five. Sirat Al-Ladina An'amta Alayhim, Six غير سرّات لا سرّات الذين أمت عليهم six غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين seven. So how does the Imam Saadi begin? I'm going to translate from the Arabic. He says about بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. I begin with every name of Allah the Exalted. Because the word ism, the word ism in Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is a, and this is a little bit of grammar. He says it's mufradun mudaf. So it comes as the name of Allah. And it comes as in the name of Allah. But because the, gra the way it's mentioned in Arabic, the, gr the grammar of the Arabic, and I won't go too much into the grammar of the Arabic, but the grammar of the Arabic indicates that it covers all of the names of Allah, all of the beautiful names of Allah. So when you say Bismillah, when you say Bismillah, this means that I begin with all of the names of Allah, and not just that I begin with the name Allah. But I begin with all of the names of Allah. And for those of you who know Arabic, then it is Mufradun Mudaf. And Al Mufrad Al Mudaf Ya'um Jami Al Asma. So for those of you who understand the grammar of Arabic, then you'll understand why. But for us who don't understand the grammar of Arabic, it's enough for us to understand that Bismillah covers all of the names of Allah. All of the names of Allah. And in all, with all of the names of Allah. Uh, and the ba here is ba'ul isti'ana. It's the ba which means asta'inu. I seek your help. Like iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in. This ba, when you say bismillah, it means asta'inu. I seek your help, O Allah. I seek your help, O Allah with all of your names.
Then Imam Sa'di he said, Allah, huwa al-ma'luh al-ma'bud. He is the one who is worshipped. And he, Allah, the meaning of the name Allah is that Allah is the one who is worshipped. Allah is the one who is worshipped. The one who deserves all worship to be for him alone. Because of the perfect attributes of divinity that he is described with. And this is a very, very beautiful and this is a very, very comprehensive and yet summarized meaning of the word Allah. That the word of Allah is Al-Mahluh Al-Ma'bud. The one who is worshipped. The one who devotion is shown to him. Why is devotion shown to Allah? Why is Allah deserving of devotion and worship and nothing else is deserving of devotion and worship? Because of the attributes of divinity which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described with. If someone were to ask you the question, why is Allah deserving of worship and why are my idols not deserving of worship? Why is Allah deserving of worship and why is Jesus, peace be upon him, Isa alayhi salam, not deserving of worship? Because of the attributes of divinity which Allah Azza wa Jal is described with. Because Allah is Ar-Rabb, Al-Malik. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Ar-Razzaq. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Quddus, Al-Salam. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives and the one who takes. All of these are every single attribute of Allah is a reason why we worship Him instead of anyone and anything else. وَهِيَ الصِّفَاتُ كَمَالُ and these attributes, they are the attributes of perfection. These attributes, they are the attributes of perfection. And we learned in our principles, take this back to the principles. Do you remember we learned about the principles of the sifat of Allah? That all of the sifat of Allah are sifatu kamal. They are all attributes of perfection. There is no imperfection in any single attribute in any way at all. That was one of the rules that we learned with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. So this is all about linking your knowledge now. It's about what you've learned, you try to make links. And if Allah makes it easy, even in the exam, I want to you know, highlight this inshallah, this issue of links between areas that you've learned, between the first subject and the second subject. Here now we learned a principle, all of the characteristics and attributes of Allah are attributes of perfection. There is no imperfection in them in any way. And that is what Imam Sa'di said is the meaning of Allah. Allah is the one whose attributes are perfect and, it ha and has no imperfection in any of his attributes. And that's why he is the one who is deserving of all worship. So you can see it's very summarized, but it's also very beneficial. It's not summarized like just Allah, the Lord. And he will say Allah and then he'll give you three lines, three small lines. Probably if you put it on one A4 page, it would be just one line. But that one line gives you the proper understanding of Tawheed, the proper understanding of the name Allah, a benefit that you can take. So that's how a Tafsir al-Sa'di is. When you read it, you feel like, wow, I really benefited from this. You didn't just learn the translation of the words and you felt like you came away with something. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. 
He says two names which evidence or which are evidence that Allah Ta'ala is the Rahmatil Wasi'ah. That Allah has comprehensive, expansive mercy, huge mercy, Azima. He said, that Allah is the one who has expansive and huge, great mercy, which has encompassed every single thing and which has, or which is applied to every single living thing. So he first of all talks about the general mercy of Allah, that these two names indicate that Allah has a huge mercy, which is vast and expansive, and which has surrounded every living thing. And Allah has written this mercy specifically for the muttaqin, for those people who are fearful of Allah or pious of Allah, those who follow his prophets and messengers. So these, they have absolute mercy. They have every part of Allah's mercy. And as for others, they only have a portion of it. So what did Imam al-Sa'di say here regarding the mercy of Allah. He mentioned two types of mercy. He said, first of all, these two names indicate to us that Allah's mercy is huge and vast and that it covers every living thing, Muslim, Kafir, animal, human being. Everything is within the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> and if you want to understand the mercy that Allah Azza wa Jal has given to the non-Muslims, the fact that Allah has not taken their lives and put them into Jahannam from the first moment that they said the words of Kufr is enough of a mercy to see the mercy of Allah. But that mercy that they will receive is only a nasib. It's only a piece, a portion of Allah's mercy. As for the absolute mercy of Allah, this will be for the muttaqin, the people of taqwa. They are the people who will get the comprehensive mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they will get the mercy of Allah in this dunya, the general mercy. They will get the specific mercy of Iman in this dunya and then they will get the mercy of Jannah and all of those things that come with it. So they will, they will be the ones who get the comprehensive mercy as opposed to the general mercy that encompasses every living thing. Before moving on to the next paragraph that Imam al-Sa'di deals with, I want to just jump into the uh, tafsir of Sheikh Muthaymeen briefly. Imam al-Sa'di takes a position with regard to Ar-Rahman al-Rahim that Ar-Rahman refers to the general mercy and Ar-Rahim refers to the specific mercy. And this is, this is one of the opinions of Ahl-Sunnah regarding the difference between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. That Ar-Rahman refers to the generic mercy, 
And Ar-Rahim refers to the specific mercy. Sheikh Ibn Taymin, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he mentioned another way of understanding the difference between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. And to me, his is more correct. And that is to say that Ar-Rahman refers to the mercy of Allah. And Ar-Rahim refers to bestowing that mercy upon whoever he wants. Why is this more correct? First of all, let's understand the meaning of this. Ar-Rahman refers to the mercy itself. In other words, Allah is the most merciful. And Ar-Rahim refers to the application of that mercy, the giving of that mercy to whoever he wants. Because Allah gives mercy to whoever he wants. Sometimes he gives a lot, sometimes he gives a piece. But he bestows that mercy. That mercy is conveyed and bestowed upon his creation. The reason why this is more correct is for two reasons. First of all, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal that Allah is in Allah. Indeed, Allah is binnas to all people, to all mankind. Ra'ufun Rahim. That Allah is to all mankind Rahim. Now, this has a problem with the tafsir that was given by Imam al Sa'di. Because what you understand, even though he was not explicit in saying it, what you understand from the tafsir of Imam al Sa'di is that Ar Rahim is the mercy which is specific to the believers. Even though he didn't, he didn't say that to be fair to him. He didn't say that explicitly. But that's the common, that's the common tafsir of Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. That Ar-Rahman is the general mercy and Ar-Rahim is the specific mercy. But Allah Azza wa Jal used the word Rahim to refer to his general mercy in Surah Al-Baqarah. That Allah is towards all people, Ra'ufun Rahim. So now we have a problem because Allah Azza wa Jal refers to his mercy with Rahim as being for all mankind. Then if we look at the words themselves, Rahim, the pattern in Arabic grammar is fa'il. And this is more appropriate to explain it as the action of conveying mercy. And Ar-Rahman on the pattern fa'alan is more appropriate to describe as the general sifa, the general attribute of mercy that belongs to Allah Azza wa So I believe that the stronger translation, and if you look in Muhsin Khan, he goes with the translation of As-Sa'di, uh, I believe, and Rahimullah Ta'ala. And likewise, Sahih International also go with this. But the more correct, and Allah Azza wa knows best, the more correct I think Sahih International go with the entirely merciful, the especially merciful. And this is the tafsir in accordance with Imam Sa'di. However, the more correct would be to say the most merciful, the bestower of mercy. Because Rahman refers to the sifa, the fact that Allah has infinite mercy. And Rahim refers to the application of that attribute to whoever Allah wills. A portion of it to the disbelievers in this world, a portion of it to the believers in this world, and the greatest portion of it 
for the believers Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So here is an example of a difference. And again, if we come to Ibn Kathir, we're likely to get even more uh, differences among the difference of the scholars between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. But the famous tafsir is that Ar-Rahman is general and Ar-Rahim is specific. But the better and the one that is more in accordance with the remaining ayat of the Quran and with the Arabic language is that Ar-Rahman refers to the fact that Allah is the most merciful and Ar-Rahim refers to the application of that mercy to whomsoever he wills Azza Then Imam Al-Sa'di he said, you should know that from the principles which are agreed upon among the Salaf of this Ummah and their scholars or their leaders is that we have Iman in the names of Allah and His attributes and the rulings which come from those attributes. So we believe as an example that He is Rahmanun Rahim, that He is the most merciful, the bestower of mercy, the one who has the attribute of mercy which he has been described with which relates to the one that mercy is given to so all blessings are an effect or, an, or all blessings are a, an effort they are the result of his mercy and this in this way we believe in all of the names we say about al-alim the all knowledgeable the one who knows everything we say that he is the most knowledgeable, the one who has knowledge by which he knows every single thing, the one who is Al-Qadir, the all-powerful or the all-able, who is able to do every single thing. What did Imam Sa'di do here? He summarized for you the aqidah of Ahl sunnah wal-Jama'ah with regard to the Asma wa-Sifat as a refutation of the Ashaira and the Maturidiyah and the Mutakallimeen and all those who came before them and after them. So look at you're getting Tawheed, Aqeedah, a summary of the proper Aqeedah in the first beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha before he even started Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Be warned that the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah is to believe in the names and attributes of Allah as they come to affirm that with every name there is an attribute that Allah is described with and to affirm the application of that attribute to his creation. That's a summary of Al-Qawaid Al-Muthra for you in one paragraph. He summarized for you all of the belief of Ahl Sunnah with regard to the names and the attributes. Why do you think Al-Imam Sa'di did this? Because of the fact that so many books of tafsir are written by the mutakallimeen those people of rhetoric and philosophy who went astray with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. So Imam Sa'di is saying, before I even begin, let me warn you against deviating with regard to the belief of Ahl Sunnah in the names and attributes of Allah. Let me give you a summary of what you should believe about the names and attributes of Allah before you even begin the tafsir of the Quran. You should believe that Allah Azza wa Jal is every name, has every name and attribute that He described Himself with and which the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam described Him with and that we affirm the attribute within that name and that if that attribute has an application to His creation then we affirm the action that is related to that attribute. And He gives all that to you just in the beginning in the summary of 
the meaning of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And that shows you the value of Tafsir al Sa'di. Because he's going to give you the correct aqidah with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. Before you even begin the tafsir of the Quran, gives you a summary of what you should believe regarding the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he continues, Alhamdulillah. With Alhamdulillah. And Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. He said, Alhamdulillah is to praise Allah with his attributes of perfection and his actions which are a balance or which are or not a balance his actions which are which you can say which go between al-fadlu or al-fadli wal-adl between giving more than you deserve and being just what did he say? Alhamd, it is athana. It is to praise Allah. It is to praise Allah. Why do we praise Allah? What do we praise Allah for? We praise Allah for his perfect attributes and actions. We praise Allah for his perfect attributes and actions. What is your dalil, O Imam Sa'di, for this? Where is your dalil to say that, we, that the praise of Allah that we do is for his sifat and for his actions? Alhamdulillahi. Rabbil Alameen. All praises for Allah. And then Allah immediately mentions his sifat, that he is our Rabb, that he is Rabbul Alameen. And many of the scholars affirmed Rabbul Alameen on its own as a name for Allah from them, Shaykh Islam al Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed you the reason why we praise him we praise him because he is rabbul alameen because he is ar-rahman ar-rahim because he is maliki yawmiddin that is why we praise allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of the perfection of his attributes and because of his actions and again al-imam al-sa'di from the beginning sets out himself as being different from the mutakallimeen those people who when you mention action along with Allah, they look for a spade to dig themselves a hole. Because they, don't, they cannot understand the concept that Allah has actions that He does whenever He wants. And they you know, twist left and right to explain this and try to say yeah, His actions are all constant and they don't go up and they don't go down and so on. But perfection is to be able to do whatever you want whenever you want. That is perfection. Perfection is not to be forced to speak constantly every day and every night for every moment and every second because if you stop speaking, you will no longer be perfect. That is not the perfection. Perfection is being able to speak whenever you want to whoever you want. That is perfection. And that is what we affirm for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with regard to His actions. That He does them whenever He wants, wherever He wants. And an Imam al-Sa'di mentioned that all of the actions of Allah come within al-fadlu wal-adl. Al-fadlu wal-adl. Because somebody may say, but you know from the actions of Allah is that he misguides and he puts people into Jahannam. And how do we reconcile this with perfection? Isn't perfection to put everyone into Jannah? This is not perfection. Perfection is, as Imam al-Sa'di said, 
Al-fadl is when you give someone more than they deserve, better than they deserve. So those of the believers that Allah enters into paradise, they are being given al-fadl, more than they deserve. Because ultimately none of us deserve paradise. None of us deserve paradise. As Allah said in Surah Al-Hujurat, فَضْلًا مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَنِعْمًا It is nothing but a grace, a fadl. We say in Arabic, فَضْلُ الْمَاءِ Al-fadl is what is left over extra that you don't need. And it's something which is additional to the, the basic requirements. So when you make wudu and you have some water left over in the, in the bowl, this is fadlul ma. This water is fadl. It's extra. It's a bonus. You could translate the word fadl as a bonus. Allah Azza wa said about our iman that our iman is fadlan min Allah. It is a bonus from Allah, a, a gift from Allah Azza wa That he gave extra to what you deserve. Because if Allah Azza wa Jal were to treat us with what we deserved, He would hasten the punishment for every single one of us. Because none of us deserve anything more than the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, Allah Azza wa Jal, out of His infinite mercy and His grace and His generosity and His kindness and His love for His creation, has bestowed upon us Iman and has given us an opportunity to achieve a paradise that we do not deserve. So this is a fadl from Allah, a grace, something which is additional to what you deserve. And then you say, someone may say, okay, but why has Allah given you the bonus and not me? And this is what Imam Sa'di said, Bain al-fadli wal-adl. Allah Azza wa Jal, in giving out that bonus, in giving out that grace, he is infinitely just. None of us deserve to pass the exam. But he knows those people who tried to revise and work hard and those people who did not try to revise and work hard. So those who tried to pass, even though you are guaranteed to fail, the fact that you tried and worked and strived, Allah from his infinite justice chooses to give you the grace and the addition and the benefit and the bonus to what you deserve because he knows the sincerity with which you tried to be able to achieve that. And this is the proper understanding of entering into paradise. As the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, none of you will enter paradise by your actions. They said, not even you, O Messenger of Allah. He said, not even me. And I even haven't done enough of my actions to, to be a you know one-to-one -one exchange for paradise except that Allah encompasses me with his mercy and yani meaning that your actions that you do in this world in of themselves are not enough to earn you Jannah but they they give you the mercy of Allah by which you enter into Jannah and that is the reconciliation between the fact that Allah gives you Jannah because of your actions but Allah doesn't give you Jannah because of your actions. How do we reconcile between those two? Your actions are, the, are that which Allah Azza wa Jal bestows His mercy on you because of. In other words, like we said, you all go to take the exam, everybody fails. 
but some people try really, really hard to pass. And those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, gives them a mercy and a grace and says, by my grace and my mercy, I will give you what you were striving for, even though in a theoretical sense, you didn't make the grade. And that's because every act of worship that you do, if you compare it to the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal has given you, it cannot compare. It can't compare. If you were to take the blessing of your eyesight and balance it against every single act of worship that you have done, your acts of worship would not reach the level of the blessing of the eyesight that Allah Azza wa Jal has given you. They would not reach the level of the blessing of the beating of the heart that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. You haven't done enough. But because you have done those actions, Allah has promised His mercy and His paradise to those who do those actions. So the actions in of themselves will not bring you paradise, but they will bring you the mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal by which you will enter paradise. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So again, Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, tells you the difference between al-fadl and al-adl and that nothing that Allah Azza wa Jal does ever goes below justice. Yani nothing that Allah does is ever unjust. And this again, if the people understood it, they would not have a problem with al-qadr wal-qadr. If you simply just went on the concept that nothing Allah does is unjust, you would never ever have a problem understanding the decree of Allah. Because ultimately, what you understand or what you don't, you know that the decree of Allah is one of two things. It is either al-fadl or it is either al-adl. It is either giving you more than you deserve or giving you exactly what you deserve. And it is nothing more than that or nothing less than that. So it's never possible that Allah Azza wa can be unjust. Allah either gives you what you deserve or He gives you more than you deserve. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when he gives you more than you deserve, he gives it out of justice. So it's not random, like you know, you see some people, they, like they want to give out money, so they just take a wad of money and they throw it in the air. And whoever catches it, catches it, and whoever doesn't, doesn't. This is not like the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says, Alaysallahu bi a'lama bishakirin. Doesn't Allah know best those who will be grateful? So Allah has a bonus to give. But he knows those people who will be grateful for that bonus and those people who will not be grateful. So he chooses to give that extra gift to you because of what he knows from what is in your heart and what is in your actions. And Allah knows best. And then he said, فَلَهُ الْحَمْدُ الْوُجُوهُ He has every kind of praise in every single way. And this is Imam al-Sa'di giving you an introduction to the meaning of al in al-hamd. Until now, he only covered al-hamd. And that al-hamd, the al here, is like the scholars say, listighraq. It covers every single kind of praise. Because every type of praise, and every word of praise, and every act of gratitude is deserving to Allah Azza wa Jal. So he is explaining to you in a very simple way that the meaning of Alhamd is that every single type of praise is belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he is deserving of every type of praise. Perfect praise. Alhamdul kamil. 
perfect praise in every single way. Rabbul Alameen. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So he says, Rabbul Alameen. He says, Ar-Rabb. Who is Ar-Rabb? Look, Imam Al-Sa'di gives a lot of importance to the names and attributes. Every time he comes to a name of Allah, he explains the meaning of that name. Because wallahi, Ikhwan, take from me that the, one of the most fundamental purposes of the Quran is to teach you who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of the most fundamental pieces of knowledge. And this is why, wallahi, when we come to the people who gave the tafsir of the Quran upon ilmul kalam, upon the knowledge of rhetoric and philosophy, that you will not benefit from their tafsir except a small amount because they missed the greatest purpose for which the Quran was revealed. Completely missed it. And they gave tafsir of the Quran, but they missed the point of the Quran. One of the major, major purposes behind the revelation of the Quran is for you to know Allah Azza wa Jal through His names and attributes and therefore worship Him based upon your knowledge of Allah Azza wa Jal. And so the one who goes past every name of Allah twisting the meaning and changing the meaning or missing it out or saying this is from the mutashabihat we don't know what it means or Allahu A'lam we don't know who is Ar-Rabb and we don't know who is Allah and we don't know who is Ar-Rahman and we don't know who is Ar-Rahim like the Mufawwidha said a group of the, the, the philosophers and the mutakallimeen they said that we don't know what these names mean these names are like Alif Lam mean we don't know anything we don't have any idea what these words mean only Allah Azza wa Jal knows and they differed among themselves. Does the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam know the meaning of them or not? Some of them said, Hatta they said the Prophet Sallallahu did not know who is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. That these are from the Mutashabihat. Allah only knows their meanings. Nobody knows them but Allah. And then half of the Quran is meaningless if we said this. So Al-Imam Al-Sa'di is going to give you every time he comes to a name of Allah, he's going to explain that name to you. So that you can know Allah and you can worship Allah based upon that knowledge of Allah Azza wa So he said, Ar-Rabb is Al-Murabbi. And this is beautiful. This is from the fawaid, the benefits that I only saw in Tafsir Al-Sa'di and it may be in some of the other books of Tafsir. But I found this meaning in, in more so highlighted in Tafsir Al-Sa'di. That the meaning of Rabb is Al-Murabbi, the one who nurtures the one who nurtures all of the alameen. Wahum man subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he says, the alameen is everyone besides Allah. So he gave a definition of alameen. Alameen is the plural of alam. Alam is the world. Alameen are all of the worlds. But if someone asks you, Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, what did he explain Al-Alameen? He said Al-Alameen is everything except Allah. Everything except Allah. The angels, the, the human beings, the jinn, the animals, the plants, the trees, all of them are under the tarbiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has nurtured them and raised them up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took you out as a First of all, nutfa as a drop, then alaqa, a, a clot of blood, then mudgha, a chewed lump, then as a tifl, as a small uh, baby, 
and you were born as a small baby, then you reached your age of strength and understanding, then some of us will become old people, and so on. This is from the nurturing of Allah And more than that, the nurturing that He gave you in your Iman, the fact that He nurtured you in your Iman. So He is Al-Murabbi, the one who nurtures everything besides Him by creating them. Number one, by creating them. Because one of the meanings of a Rabb is Al-Khaliq. One of the meanings of a Rabb is Al-Khaliq. So one of the ways that He nurtured them is by creating them. And by providing for them means. Yani the means by which they live, by which they breathe. Allah provided for us oxygen. Well, if the, if the number percentage of oxygen went down a bit or up a bit, we would die. Allah provided for us sunlight. If the sun went away, we would die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided a perfect environment for us to live, water for us to drink. If we didn't have water, we would die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided for us tools by which we could build houses and which we could move from place to place and animals to ride on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us everything that we need to be able to live. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He continues, bestowed upon them, yani upon the alameen, all or some, or uh, He bestowed upon them huge graces, huge blessings, huge ni'mah. Blessings which, if they had lost them, they would not be able to live. Think of all of the blessings of Allah. If a handful of those blessings went away, we would not be able to live. Wallahi, and even the smallest of blessings, even the blessing of the AC, and the small blessings. Wallahi, and if you have the AC breaks in your house, you. Allahumma'ala, and you live like you, you, you know, like you can't, you can't manage, you can't bear it. Even though the people bear it in some places, and they used to bear it in the earlier generations, but even the smallest of things, when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala takes these blessings away, you become. And some of you, you, you know, your phone breaks for two days, and you start having withdrawal symptoms. Without these blessings of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you can't possibly live. And Allah has given you so many blessings. These are, the, these are baby things. What about the blessing of the heart, the blessing of the lungs, the blessing of the eyesight, the blessing of being able to hear, the blessing of being able to speak? All of these blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that if we were to lose them, we would not be able to live. And He said, so whatever blessings they have are from Him, be exalted. Whatever blessing you have, it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he said, and his nurturing of his creation is of two types. The nurturing of his creation is of two types, general and specific. The general nurturing is his creation of everything that exists and his provision of them or for them and his guidance to what will benefit them which by which they are able to live in this dunya. So if you're asked, what did Imam Sa'di say about the general nurturing of Allah? 
He said regarding the general nurturing of Allah that it is the creation, provision, and guidance to those things which will benefit them by which they can remain alive in this dunya. And as for the specific, as for the specific nurturing, it is the nurturing that Allah gives to his awliya, to his beloved. So he nurtures them upon iman and he gives them the success to be able to achieve that iman and he completes that iman for them and he keeps them away from anything which would take them away from that and any obstacles which would come between them and between their iman <coughs> and between its reality. This is the tarbiyah of tawfiq, the tarbiyah of Allah's tawfiq, Allah giving you the success to be able to be a believer to everything which is good. And al-isma, the protection from ev against everything which is evil. And perhaps this reason is the secret, he says. Perhaps this reason is the secret as to why the majority of the dua of the prophets is made with al-rabb. Because all of the things they are asking for come within the topic of his specific nurturing. So when the prophets are asking Allah to make them from the believers, to bless them in their da'wah, to make it their people believe, all of this comes within the special nurturing of Allah and for that reason it makes sense for them to make dua to Allah with Rabbana, our Lord. And he says perhaps this is the secret behind why most of the dua of the prophets is made with Rabbana because they're asking Allah for tarbiyah khasa, for a special nurturing, a nurturing of Iman and Tawfiq and Jannah and protection from the hellfire. He said, so his statement, Rabbul Alameen, indicates that he is the only one who creates and the only one who controls and the only one who bestows blessings. And it indicates the completeness of his richness that Allah is not in need of anything else. And the completeness of the poverty of everything besides him and that everything besides him is in desperate need of him and Allah is rich and not in need of anyone in every single way and in every single means of understanding so in every way what does Rabbul Alameen indicate it indicates that Allah is the only one who creates and controls and blesses and that Allah is not in need of anything besides him and everyone is in need of and Allah is not in need of anyone else and Allah and everything else is in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this is an explanation of Tawheed al-Rububiyyah the Tawheed of the Rububiyyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because this ayah gathers all of the types of Tawheed Tawheed al-Rububiyyah wal-Uluhiyyah wal-Asma'u al-Sifat. As for the Tawheed of al-Rububiyyah, in the statement of Allah, Rabb, Rabbil Alameen, 
that Allah is the Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the provider. As for Al-Uluhiyyah in the statement, Allah, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. This is Uluhiyyah, that we worship Allah and we don't devote worship to anyone other than Him. And as for the Asma'u Sifat, then you have the, the name of Allah, Allah, and the name Ar-Rabb, and the, the attribute or the name Rabbul Alameen. So this is an ayah which gathers together all of the types of Tawheed in one ayah. So he explains to you Tawheed al-Rububiyyah, which is the creation, control, and blessings that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that Allah needs no one and everyone else needs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maliki yawmiddin. He said al-Malik, again, straight away, names and attributes. Al-Malik, he is the one who is described with the attribute of al-Mulk, of dominion, which from its effects, is that he is the one who commands and he is the one who prohibits. So one of the meanings of al-mulk, kingship or dominion, is that Allah is the one who tells you what you can do and what you can't do. And he gives reward and he punishes because the supreme king, the supreme sovereign, the one who owns everything in the heavens and the earth, he is the one who punishes and he is the one who rewards. And he is the one who does with his possession every kind of thing that he wishes to do. And there is Allah does with us whatever he wants. And everything is his, everything belongs to him. And if everything belongs to him, then he is the one who has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation because everything belongs to him. And Allah attached his dominion to Yawm al-Din, which is Yawm al-Qiyamah, the day in which the people will be judged for their deeds, the good of them and the bad of them. Because al-Din, it means judgment. Judgment between the good and the bad. Because on that day, it will become apparent to his creation completely the true perfection of his dominion and his justice and his wisdom. Many people may say today, from the atheists, they say there is no God. I own what I own. Or like Fir'aun, they say, I do not think you have a God except me. Those people, it is only on Yawmuddin, the day of judgment, the day of recompense, the day of Qiyamah, that they will recognize that in reality everything was part of the mulk of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and everything was under his control and everything was created by him and he did with it whatever he wanted. The reason Yawmuddin is attached there is to show you that it is on that day that people will truly recognize the extent of Allah's sovereignty over His creation. They will not recognize Allah's sovereignty until that day. As for the believers, they recognize Allah's sovereignty in this dunya and in the akhirah. But for the entire of His creation to recognize His sovereignty, this will truly happen on the Day of Judgment. 
Because it is then that they will realize liman al-mulkul yawm. Who does the sovereignty belong to on that day? Lillahi al-wahid al-qahar. To Allah, the only one. The one that cannot be resisted. So that is why it will become apparent to the whole of creation on that day that Allah is al-Malik and Allah is al-Malik. That will become apparent to the people on Yawm al-Din. Likewise, His justice. People may say, Allah is not just. Ta'ala Allah amma yaqulun, high is Allah above what they say. They may say, why is Allah doing this to me? But on the day of judgment, the justice of Allah and the wisdom of Allah will become apparent to all of His creation. And so for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Maliki yawmiddin. And on that day, all of the ownership of creation will be cut off. You will not be even carrying one dirham with you that you own. You will not even own shoes to walk in. You will not even own clothes to wear. You will own absolutely nothing on that day. And so it will be clear that everything belonged to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No king will come with his kingdom. And that was why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, where are the kings? Ain al-muluk, where are the kings on this day? Because there will be no dominion on this day except for, Allah, for the dominion that is belonging to Allah azawajal. And the reality is that any king in this dunya only has been given his kingdom by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is a part of Allah's kingdom that he has given to that person. And this will only become truly clear on the day of judgment. He continued by saying, on that day, the kings and their subjects and the slaves and the free people will be equal. So on that day, the slave will be in the same position as the king. And the king will be in the same position as his subject. The free person will be equal to the slave. And that is why another reason why Allah says Maliki Yawmiddin because on that day the true ownership will become clear that the sovereignty and ownership is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of them will be submissive to His greatness and His majesty or His power. All of them will be waiting for Him to take them to account. All of them will be hoping for his reward. All of them will be fearing his punishment. As opposed to now, only the believers are hoping for the reward of Allah and fearing his punishment. But on Yawm al-Din, every single one of the creation, whether they were a king or a subject, whether they were a slave or a free man, will be begging Allah for his mercy and fearing Allah's punishment. So for that reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned it specifically. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Maliki Yawmiddin and Malik of every other day as well. So Imam Sa'di is saying it is not that Allah is Maliki Yawmiddin and not the Malik of any other day. Allah is the Malik of Yawmiddin and Allah is the Malik of every other day. But because on Yawm al-Din, the whole of creation will realize that Allah is al-Malik, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned, Maliki Yawm al-Din. Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in. Meaning, 
we single you out alone with worship and with seeking help. We single you out alone with worship and seeking help. Because, again, uh, here, it's a little bit of a grammar point, but I'll, I'll try and simplify it for you, like without going into Arabic grammar. The fact that Iyaka is mentioned before Na'bud indicates that it is only possible to worship Allah and nobody else. If we had said about Allah it would not be as, uh, as clear or as emphatic. But when we say being repeated at the beginning of the verb indicates that this is absolutely and completely for Allah in every single way. And it can never be for anyone else under any circumstances. And this affirms Al-Hukum and it affirms the and it, the, 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 the legislation or the right to legislate of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that it doesn't belong to anyone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not the legislation, it affirms the rule and it affirms, the, it affirms that this applies to it affirms that this applies to the one being mentioned and not to anyone else So it is as if you are saying, we worship you and we do not worship anyone else and we seek help from you and we do not seek help for, from anyone else. And that is what it says. It's as if we are saying, we worship you and we do not worship anyone else and we seek help from you and we do not seek help from anyone else. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put worship before seeking help. From the point of putting something general before something specific. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Allah put worship, why did Allah put worship before seeking help? This is, as we say, mentioning something general and then mentioning a specific part of that general thing. And this happens in the Quran. For example, من كان عدوا لله وملائكته ورسله وجبريل وميكال فإن الله عدو للكافر Whoever is an enemy to Allah's angels and messengers and to Jibreel and Mikal. Okay, Jibreel is one of the angels and messengers. So why mention angels and messengers and then mention Jibreel? When Jibreel is one of the messengers. Likewise, إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات Good deeds are a part of Iman by consensus of Ahlul Sunnah. So why mention good deeds after Iman? Why not just say, Why say, All of these are from the same example. They are from 
تقديم العام على الخاص mentioning something general and then mentioning a specific part of that general thing that was just mentioned for the sake of giving importance to the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over the right of his slave so this is the first reason that al-imam al-sa'di mentions for giving precedence for ibadah and then ibadah and then seeking help because ibadah is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seeking help is a type of ibadah but when you talk about seeking help you think about who you think about yourself when you talk about seeking help you think about yourself as it relates to Allah when you talk about ibadah then you think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so al-imam al-sa'di said that putting the right of Allah before the right of his slave and he putting what belongs to Allah before those things that benefit the or that are like you know that are something that is in your interests getting help from Allah this is the first uh, any concept some of the scholars mentioned another uh, another reason for this they said that isti'ana is one of the most common things that people make shirk in and when you say you alone we worship that's understood but when we say you alone we ask for help it emphasizes that many many people fall into making a partner with Allah by asking others for help and if you look at the Muslims today who fall into shirk, 99% of the shirk that they fall into is isti'ana, seeking the help. So you hear them say, Ya Ali, aghithni, or Ali, help me. And you hear them say, Ya Ali, al-madad, give me help, give me, and so on and so forth. And they call, Ya Abdul Qadir, al-madad, or Abdul Qadir, give me help. All of this is isti'ana. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlighted it so that the Muslims don't fall into the most common means for making a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is seeking help from other than him in that which only he can do subhanahu wa ta'ala and then Imam al-Sa'di he says al-ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything which Allah loves and is pleased with from statement and action that which is apparent and that which is or that which is external and that which is internal to the best of my knowledge he took this this from Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala and this is a manqool, and it's, it's a quote from Shaykh al-Islam al-Taymiyyah that ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from statement and action, whether external or internal. So everything Allah loves and is first of all a comprehensive term. A comprehensive term meaning it covers lots of things. Ibadah is not just dua, and it's not just praying, and it's not just sacrificing. Ibadah is a huge term. Worship is a huge term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with. Whether it is an action or a statement, whether it is in your heart, like fear of Allah, love of Allah, or whether it is on your limbs, like prayer and sacrifice. And al-isti'ana is reliance or trusting upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring you benefit and keep away from you harm. And trusting in Him to be able to give you that. That is what Al-Isti'ana is. 
So when you trust in other than Allah or you rely upon other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring benefit to you and to keep harm away from you in those things which only Allah can do. So it's not shirk to say, can you help me lift this table? Because you and me, we can lift the table. But for keeping away for you the harms that only Allah can keep away and bringing benefit that only Allah can bring, then in this seeking that from other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the greatest sin that a person can do. Then Imam Sa'di he says, and he says that doing acts of worship and seeking the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is the means of eternal happiness and savior or being saved from every evil. So there is no means to be saved except by doing these two things, worshiping Allah and by seeking his help. And the only reason that ibadah is ibadah or the only means that ibadah can be considered to be valid is that if, it is ta- if that act of worship is taken from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and that if it is intended for the sake of Allah. So he's giving you the two conditions of worship. The first is that it should be in tafsir al-Sa'di. The first mentioned is that it should be ma'khudha an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It should be taken from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Any act of worship which is not taken from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam will never be accepted by Allah. As in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, and the wording is that of Sahih Muslim. Man Whoever does an action which is not in accordance with what we have brought for you, it will be rejected. And the second condition that it must be sincere for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these two things are that which makes something ibadah. Any something cannot be considered to be worship unless it fulfills these two conditions. It's sincerely for the sake of Allah and it's taken from the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi And the mention of al-isti'ana after ibadah, even though isti'ana is a part of it, is because of the need of the servants in all of their acts of worship to seek the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is another reason why isti'ana is mentioned along with ibadah. Why is Because in every act of ibadah, we will need to seek help from Allah. We will not be able to pray, we will not be able to fast, we will not be able to do any act of worship without the help of Allah. And that is why worship comes and then the help of Allah comes. For if Allah does not help him, he will not be able to achieve what he wishes in doing those things which he has been commanded and keeping away from those things which he has been prohibited from then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said ihdina sirat al-mustaqeen meaning guide us and show us and give us the success to be able to achieve the straight path and it is the clear path which takes you to Allah and his paradise so he said, As-sirat al-mustaqim is at tariq al-wadih, the clear path which takes you to Allah and his paradise. 
and it is knowing the truth and acting upon it. And look at the benefits, small words, only just one or two lines, but he gives you the benefit. What is this Sirat al-Mustaqeem according to Al-Imam al-Sa'di? It is ma'rifatul haqq wal-amalu bihi, knowing the truth and acting upon it. Knowing the truth and acting upon it. So when we say, guide us to the straight path, we say guide us to the path and guide us on the path. And Imam Sa'di said, guide us to the path so we know where it is and guide us on the path so we keep on it. Guide us to the path and guide us on the path. So being guided to the straight path is to stick firmly to the religion of Islam and to leave every other religion besides it. So this is the, one of the mentions he says, to be guided to the straight path is to stick firmly to the religion of Islam and to avoid everything which is beside it from all of the other religions. And being guided to the straight path includes being guided to all of the secondary religious issues in knowledge and action. So the first meaning, being guided to the straight path, is being guided to Islam and sticking to it. And avoiding every other religion besides Islam. And the second meaning of being guided to the straight path is being guided to the tafasil, the details. The details, you know that, not just being guided to Islam, okay, I'm a Muslim, but being guided to how to pray properly, being guided to how to fast properly, being guided to how to make dua properly, all of the, the individual details, ilman wa amala, in knowledge and action, because we need Allah to guide us to know the right thing and to do the right thing, not just to know the right thing. And you have a group of people who know the right thing, but they don't do the right thing. So we're asking Allah to guide us to know the right thing and to do the right thing. And he said, this dua is from the most comprehensive of dua and the most beneficial of them for the servant. And there is almost no dua more beneficial or it is among the most beneficial of all the dua that you can make, ihdina sirat al-mustaqeem. And for this reason, it is an obligation for every person to make dua with this dua in every raka'ah of his prayer because of our desperate need of this dua. And this straight path, it is sirat al-ladheena an'amta alayhim. The description of this straight path, it is the path of those upon whom you have bestowed your favor. Notice how Allah describes the prophets here. Those who the favor of Allah has been given to them, the blessing, the extra, the bonus, any ni'mah is what you give someone in addition to what they deserve. Because you don't say a ni'mah for a wage. A wage you call it a ratib, or you call it ajr. Yani you get ujur, you know, you, get, you do something, you get your wage. And ni'mah is something you give to somebody additional to what they actually deserve. And he says, who are those who Allah has bestowed his favor upon? They are an-nabiyyin, the prophets. Was-siddiqeen, and the truthful ones, like Abu Bakr as-siddiq. Was-shuhada, the martyrs. And as-saliheen, and the righteous. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us this. And this is tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an. 
This is a perfect example of explaining the Quran with the Quran. Because Allah Azza wa Jal said, In Surah An-Nisa, if I'm not mistaken, but I'll check that any, I'm just off the top of my head. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described those those who Allah has bestowed His favor upon. So Allah Azza wa Jal in this ayah explains an'amta alayhim. فَأُولَٰئِكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ وَالصِّدِّقِينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ وَحَسُنَ أُولَٰئِكَ رَفِيقًا So Allah explains the meaning of سِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ Who are الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ Who is Allah given His favor to? To the prophets and the truthful and the martyrs and the righteous and what an excellent group of companions they are. غير And he's starting غير المغضوب عليهم غير i.e. غير الصراط not the path of in the meaning of غير here غير يعني غير الصراط so he's telling you that there is a word which is understood here when we say غير المغضوب عليهم the meaning of غير المغضوب عليهم غير الصراط or غير صراط المغضوب عليهم not the path of those and that's why if you look at Muhsin Khan you will see in brackets not the path not the path of those i.e do not take us to take us to the straight path the path of the prophets and the truthful and the martyrs and the righteous and don't take us to the path of those who have earned your anger your anger is upon them those who know the truth and have left it like the jews and similar to them now this is very very important because when you sometimes see, and I can't remember in Muhsin Khan, I believe that probably they write not the path of those who have earned your anger, open brackets, the Jews, and those who have gone astray, open brackets, the Christians. The Jews and the Christians are an example of each one. And they are not the only people that come under Al-Maghdubi alayhim and Al-Dalim. Rather, the general understanding of Al-Maghdubi alayhim are the Jews and all those who are similar to the Jews, i.e. everyone who knows the truth and refuses to act upon it. Everyone who knows the truth, غير sarat, and other than the path of Al-Dalim, those who left the truth because of their ignorance and misguidance like the Christians and those who are similar to them. So again, Imam Sa'di is giving you the, the comprehensive understanding that the example the Prophet ﷺ gave when the Prophet ﷺ said they are the Jews and the Christians is an example, not a comprehensive description. Like when the, the tafsir of the Prophet ﷺ, when he said that Al-Maghdubi alayhim are the Jews and Al-Dalin are the Christians is an example of tafsir by example. I.e. giving an example or giving a like you can say a uh, an application of who these people are and it includes all those who are similar to them so anybody who knows the truth and doesn't act upon it is similar to the jews 
And everyone who doesn't know the difference between the truth and falsehood is similar to the Christians. So the ayah was revealed regarding the Jews and the Christians and all those who are similar to them. So if you're asked who are al-maghdubi alayhim according to al-imam al-sa'di, the answer is they are those who know the truth but don't act upon it. Like the Jews and those who are similar. And in who are al-dalleen, they are those who do not know the truth or who turn away from the truth because of their ignorance and misguidance like the Christians and all those who are similar to the Christians. He then concludes by saying this surah, even though it is very, very short, this surah, even though it is very, very short, it covers, though it covers a huge range of, uh, of uh, content, which is, you know, cannot be found in such a summarized way in any other surah in the Quran. It covers the types of Tawheed al-Thalatha. So he's going to tell you about the three types of Tawheed now. It covers the three types of Tawheed. Tawheed al-Rububiyya, the Tawheed of Allah's Lordship, which is taken from Rabbul Alameen. And the Tawheed al-Ilahiyya. And as you guys will be summarizing now when you, if you're doing your, uh, your summary uh, notes, we covered this in Thalatha al-Usul. Tawheed al-Ilahiyya, the Tawheed of Allah's worship. And that is that Allah should be worshipped alone. And it is taken from the word Allah. And from his statement, Iyaka na'bud. Yani the word Allah indicates Tawheed al-Ilahiyyah or Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah. And the word Iyaka na'bud likewise indicates Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah. And Tawheed al-Asma'u al-Sifat, the Tawheed of Allah's names and attributes. And that is to affirm the attributes of perfection for Allah Azza wa Jal. Those that he affirmed for himself and those that his messenger affirmed from him. Without denying them. And without comparing Allah Azza wa Jal to his creation or resembling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his creation. Or making Allah resemble his creation. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as this is evidenced by the statement, Alhamd. Yani alhamd, that this is only for Allah and not for anybody else. Only for Allah and not for anybody else, as we have previously mentioned. And it contains the affirmation of prophethood in the statement of Allah al-Mustaqim. Because it is not possible to be guided to the straight path without the prophets and the messengers. So if you're asked, how is prophethood affirmed in Surah Al-Fatiha? Prophethood is affirmed in Surah Al-Fatiha by the statement, al-mustaqim," Because this is the statement which affirms that it is impossible for you to be guided to the religion of Islam without the prophets and the messengers, And it affirms al-jaza' that there will be reward and punishment for the actions that people have done in the statement Maliki Yawmiddin. Because reward and punishment are through Allah's justice. And the meaning of ad deen is al jaza bil adal. The meaning of ad deen is al jaza bil adal, reward 
and punishment in justice. So when you talk about ad-deen, what is the meaning of ad-deen according to Imam al-Sa'di? Ad-deen means reward and punishment in justice. Or just reward and punishment. That's probably a better way of saying it. Just reward and punishment. Reward and punishment that take place based upon justice. And it contains the affirmation of Al-Qadr. It contains affirming the belief in Al-Qadr. Because the servant is really doing actions, as opposed to what the Qadariyya and the Jabariyya say. And he said that Surah Al-Fatiha is a refutation against the Qadariyya and the Jabariyya. Because it affirms that we are doing actions in of ourselves, but that those actions are within the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, rather, this surah refutes every single group from Ahlul Bid'ah wa Dalal. Every single group of Bid'ah and misguidance are refuted by Surah Al Fatiha. In the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, Ihdina Sirat al Mustaqeen. Sirat al Ladin al Amta alayhim ghayr al Maldubi alayhim wa al-Dalin. Because knowing the truth and acting upon it. Yani, uh, because this is knowing the truth and acting upon it. And every Mubtadi'ah, every innovator, and every misguided person is in opposition to that. And every innovator and every misguided person is not upon the Sirat al Mustaqeen. And is upon the path of Al-Maghdubi alayhim or Al-Dalin. Either they do not know the bid'ah that they are doing is wrong and therefore they are from Al-Dalin. Or either they know that the bid'ah that they are doing is wrong so they are from Al-Maghdubi alayhim. And it contains ikhlas al-deen lillah, singling out the religion for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in worship and in seeking help. In the statement of Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'een falhamdulillahi rabbil alameen So all praises to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. We just go back to the issue of Qadr because maybe it didn't. Uh, the tafsir al-Sa'di is very summarized in this and you want to understand the affirmation of uh, Al-Qadr wal-Qadha. What Imam al-Sa'di is saying here is Surah Al-Fatiha affirms that we have actions. Through that we are the ones who are doing those actions. This instantly refutes the Jabariyya who think that we are puppets on strings and that Allah is the one who is forcing us or compelling us to worship Him and we have no ability to do anything in that. So Alhamdulillah is a refutation of them and is a refutation of them. Because it affirms an action for us. And likewise of the Qadariyya, who said that there is no such thing as Qadr and that everything is random. When we say, al-mustaqim, we affirm that our actions can only take place by tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by success from Allah. So if you look at the whole meaning, and you, could, you don't have to use those two ayahs, you could use other parts of the surah. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Likewise. It proves that we are the ones praising Allah. Allah is not praising Himself. Allah is praising Himself and we are praising Him. But it affirms that we have an action. Alhamdulillah. 
And at the same time, it affirms that we can only do it through the help of Allah who is Rabbul Alameen. And one of the meanings of our Rabb is affirming Qadr and Qada. Because the meaning of our Rabb is the one who has complete control over all of his creation. So when you say Rabbul Alameen or Rabbil Alameen, you refute the Qadariya. When you say Rabbil Alameen, you refute the Qadariya because Allah cannot be a Rabb unless he has complete control over his creation. And when you say Alhamdulillah, you refute the Jabariya, who say that everything you do is forced by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you have no ability to worship him according to your own ability. And the whole of the surah is like this. And in the whole surah is an affirmation of the belief of Ahl sunnah in all of the issues of Tawheed and Aqeedah. And this shows you the foolishness of the people who say there is no Aqeedah in the Quran. Like some of the famous du'at of our time. And I won't mention names, but you know who they are. And they say there is no Aqeedah in the Quran. And that is why I wrote a reply to one of them and I said to him, I seek refuge from the one who makes tafsir of the Quran and doesn't understand Surah Al-Fatiha. Because if that person had understood Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, he would not have made that statement. And yet he makes tafsir of the Quran from Al-Fatiha to Surah Al-Nas. And until now he has not understood Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And until this day, he has not got to the point where he has understood Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And that is why he says there is no Aqeedah in the Quran. Surah Al-Fatiha is Aqeedah from the first word until the last word. From Bismillah Rahman Rahim until Sirat Al-Ladin An'amta Alayhim Ghayr Al-Maghdubi Alayhim Waladdalin. All of it is Aqeedah. All of it is Tawheed. All of it is a refutation of the people of Bid'ah and Ahwa and Talal. This is Surah Al-Fatiha from the beginning all the way to the end. And so you appreciate that Surah Al-Fatiha being Umm Al-Quran is a summary of everything that the Quran contains. And therefore, when we say the whole of the Quran is Aqeedah, we have an evidence. Allah, what is your evidence, O Muhammad? That the whole of the Quran is Aqeedah? Because the whole of Surah Al-Fatiha is Aqeedah from beginning to end. And Surah Al-Fatiha is Umm Al-Qur'an, as the Prophet ﷺ described it, Umm Al-Qur'an. فَإِنَّهَا لَا صَلَاةَ لِمَنْ لَمْ يَقْرَأْ بِأُمْ الْقُرْآنِ And Umm Al-Qur'an means that it summarizes all of the other meanings that are found within the Qur'an. And since it is Aqeedah from beginning to end, then the Qur'an is Aqeedah from beginning to end. Like Ibn Al-Qayyim said, every single ayah is Tawheed. In the Quran, there is not a single ayah in the Quran that is not a part of Tawheed. Either telling you that you have to have Tawheed, or warning you against not having Tawheed, or giving an example of the people who have Tawheed, or giving you the example of the people who fell into shirk, or commanding you with a command which is a part of the Tawheed of Allah, or forbidding you from something which is a part of the Tawheed of Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah's forbidding and commanding is a part of His a part of his rububiyyah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the whole of the Qur'an is Tawheed and the whole of the Qur'an is Aqeedah from beginning to end. And that is why, or that is the evidence for which we say this. And alhamdulillah, we finished uh, the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha according to the, the tafsir of Imam Al-Sa'di. It's very summarized. Actually, I'm mostly, most of the lecture was me explaining what Imam Al-Sa'di said. But if you read it from Al-Sa'di itself, it's very, very short and very summarized. A few lines about every ayah. Sometimes just a word, like غير المغضوب عليهم, those who know the truth but don't act on it, like the Jews. ولا الضالين, 
those who turn away from the truth out of ignorance and misguidance like the Christians. A few words with each one. But you see the value of Tafsir al-Sa'di. When you, when you study Surah Al-Fatiha from this Tafsir, you see the value of it. And that it is not just like a translation that you read and you pick up a few words. And you get meanings that will help you in your salah, that will help you in your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that will help you in your getting near to Allah azza wa jal. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Okay. We have some questions inshallah ta'ala. We have a little bit of time today, 20 minutes or so for questions. Uh, I want to take these ones first from the essential questions. Uh, as some people were asking about the word-for-word -word translation of the Qur'an and people who do word-for-word -word Qur'an interpretation. Like, you know, when you go to a class and they do word-by-word. And sometimes people are asked, you know, you give your tafsir, you give your tafsir. So is this halal or is it haram? In general, if you have a teacher who is guiding you through that, there is no harm in it. There's no harm in me saying to you, who can give me what they think is the tafsir of the ayah, as long as I qualify that and say, yes it is or no it isn't. But as for just asking people randomly to give tafsir, and then not qualifying or giving any answer to that. Like just saying, you give the tafsir, you think, okay, all of us, yani, we all reach Allah, all the roads lead to Rome, and all of the tafsirs lead to Allah, then this is not correct. This comes under what Shaykh al-Islam al taymiyyah warned against at the end of his muqaddimah. Tafsir bilhawa, tafsir in, by desires and by al-aql, mujarrad al-aql, just using your intellect to think about what the ayah means. But if it's part of a class and I say, okay, who can give me what they think? Who thinks they know the tafsir of this ayah? I do, I think it means this. And then I say, okay, you're right about this. I don't think you have an evidence for this. What do you think? This is valid and constructive. There's no harm in this. But if it's just everyone giving a tafsir that they think, then this is not valid. If, however, people are giving tafsir based on research, so everyone comes together and says, okay, I'm going to read you. I found in tafsir al-Sa'di that he said, one, two, three, four, five. And I found in Tafsir ibn Kathir that he said one, two, three, four, five. This is not Tafsir by the intellect. This is Tafsir by narrations and by the Quran and by the Sunnah, inshallah. But in general, we don't encourage people to make a Tafsir from their own mind without having someone to then say, yes, you are right, or no, you are, no, you are wrong. So hopefully that answers those questions. Some people asked questions previously, which I had already answered. Uh, I answered them in the Friday night reflections, your questions answered, I think. So if you, um, sometimes if you missed a question, I don't believe I've left any questions. So if you've, if you've missed a question, you might find it was answered in the Friday night reflections, which is on Kalima's YouTube. It's called your questions, uh, your questions answered. So I'm not getting any more questions from the sister's side at the moment. Sometimes they come late. So if the brothers have any questions, they're welcome to ask. This one, okay. This one says, uh, I have a brother, nieces and nephews, they reside in the UAE. Traditional schooling isn't feasible anymore, deen and dunya-wise. Can you recommend an online school or homeschooling teacher? What is your advice? I have a full lecture on this topic, inshallah ta'ala. So the first thing I would say to people is, um, is if you watch the lecture, I, I think it's called something like your children's education. What you do, go to Kalima's YouTube. And on their YouTube itself, do the search. Not the search on the whole of YouTube, just the search on their channel. And search for education. 
I think the top result will come up. It's something like called your children's education. Uh, in it, I talked extensively about homeschooling, about uh, how to teach your kids at home and stuff like that. If that answers your question, Alhamdulillah. If it doesn't, then I would say uh, email me for the particular parts that you're not generically like, what do you advise? Because I gave my advice in that lecture, but specifically like we're looking for, for example, online school. Online schools, there are a number of, um, of websites. And to be honest, I don't think at the moment there is a good Islamic one that I would say to you like Islamically use this. But there are plenty of good generic uh, homeschooling websites. Uh, which I have mentioned in that link. So if you actually go to the YouTube channel and watch that video in the link There are like three or four maybe five websites that I recommend that I've just used and they are non-muslim websites But alhamdulillah because you're homeschooling your kids you have the ability to be able to take away anything that isn't suitable um, You know take away anything that might be uh, you know that you might not be confident with but generally you know, I've never had to take anything away yet. I've never seen anything in there as of yet that has caused me any, you know, any cause for any cause for concern. Online tutors, I'm not really aware of, but I'm sure you can find them by asking. Both Dubai and Sharjah have homeschooling groups. That is, they have societies or clubs for parents who homeschool their children. And you can contact them, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, and they will also give you advice about tutors or meetings where people can learn more, inshallah. But I believe that video will answer 99% of your, of your questions, inshallah. It's called something like your children's education or something like that. Um, or how do we educate our children, something like that. And in the description, there are a whole bunch of links to, to websites and things like that. Uh, and then again, for further information, I would recommend you contact uh, the Dubai, I don't know what it's called, Dubai Homeschooling Association or something like that. Just Google it. You should be able to find they have whatsapp groups they have you know like information where you can reach them and they will advise you about tutors for your particular course that you are doing for your kids um, and anything else after that you're welcome to uh, email me and ask inshallah do we have any more questions from the brothers side if the sisters have any questions uh, if the kalima volunteers could upload them okay i think i've got one uploaded here from the sister's side when we say Whoever has taqwa of Allah, he will make for him a way out. Sometimes when we are talking about the Qur'an and Allah, we might say, like you know how amazing it is when Allah, uh, that's not clear what it says. And then it says here, for example, the above ayah, Allah, uh, in it the surah of... <coughs> Allah used it, okay. Oh, isn't it amazing when Allah used it here? Okay. And isn't it amazing that Allah put this particular ayah in this particular surah? For example, the above ayah, Allah used it in the surah of divorce, which is a very hard thing to bear. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used it in the surah uh, of divorce. Is it, is it uh, allowed to do this? I guess I'm doing my best to try to explain what the question says. So I'm going to summarize what I believe the question says. Is it allowed for us to bear in mind the surah in which Allah Azza wa Jal revealed an ayah in and to take a benefit from that? For example, Allah said, Whoever, <coughs> whoever 
has taqwa of Allah, he will make for him a way out. And that this is mentioned in the surah of divorce. And that indicates that divorce is something very hard, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a way through divorce for those people who, uh, for those people who um, fear Allah or those people who have taqwa of Allah. I think to a certain extent, yes. I think it's easier than that. Instead of seeing the surah, seeing the context is easier. It's a little safer. Instead of seeing the surah, because someone might say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya amanu ila If you take a debt to a certain, you know, for a prescribed period of time, write it down. And this is in Surah Al-Baqarah. So what is the connection between the debt and the Baqarah? There is no connection between the debt and the and the Baqarah here. And it's not that you take a debt for a cow or that it relates to a cow in some way. But what you see is the context. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned divorce. And then Allah said, So it's clear that this has a link to divorce because it's mentioned around the ayat of divorce. The ayat of divorce come before it and come, come after it. Therefore, because it's mentioned in the context of divorce, we say that it is valid to say that this, is a, this mentions or shows us that even in the difficulty of the situation of divorce, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used this ayah in this place. But yes, it is valid to say that where Allah put the ayah is relevant to the tafsir of the ayah. It's not the only thing relevant to the tafsir of the ayah, but where the ayah is, the context, the ayat that come before and after, give you part of the tafsir of the ayah. So there's definitely, uh, it's completely valid what the sister said, but I would recommend to the sister that instead of going by the surah name, that you go by the context. I mean, the surah is talking about divorce. It starts with the issue of divorce. Ya nisa And so it starts about talking about divorce. And then after talking about divorce and then continuing to talk about divorce in the middle of that context, Allah says, So there's no doubt that this has a relation to to the issue of divorce because of the context. But don't take it too far and relate every ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah to a Baqarah. Or every ayah in Surah Ali Imran to the family of Imran. Or every ayah in Surah An-Nisa only applies to the women, for example. And don't take it to an extreme, but within the context of the ayat which are mentioned, it's definitely valid. And Allah knows best. An audio tafsir. In, in Arabic, definitely, but in English, I'm not sure who I would... I have heard... I've heard very good things, although I haven't listened to it. Uh, so brother went to the Jamia Islamia with me. His name is Aqil. Aqil Mahmoud. Uh, A-Q-E-E-L. And I've heard that he's been doing the tafsir of the Qur'an, and I've heard very good things about it. I haven't listened to it myself, but I've heard that his uh, tafsir is... <laughs> is really good um, so you, you could look for that I'm not sure how much of the tafsir he's done um, but I've heard that it's good and I, I went to the university with Aqil he's a lovely brother so um, I've heard that his tafsir is, is good and Allah knows best but I, I don't know how much of it he's done or if he's doing it I've also heard that Abu Mus'ab and you all know Abu Mus'ab everybody knows Abu Mus'ab Abu Mus'ab has been doing Tafsir al-Sa'di and I think he's done a huge portion of the Qur'an of Tafsir al-Sa'di in English. 
So you can get an audio tafsir of tafsir al-Sa'di from Abu Mus'ab. I would have a look on his one way to paradise. Don't ask me Facebook or YouTube or whatever he has. Any of you guys know better. I think he might even have a website, onewaytoparadise.net or something like that. Anyways, it's called One Way to Paradise. And on there, he has a morning class. I think it's a Friday morning or, or a Saturday morning, maybe Friday morning, where he is just doing tafsir al-Sa'di. And he's done a good chunk. That's what he told me last time I met him. So those are two resources that I would recommend uh, for you, inshallah. The translation of, uh, of, uh, of Abdullah Yusuf Ali. Uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali, uh, the translation is, it, you have to give it credit where credit's due. That it was one of the first translations by a Muslim of the Quran into English. And we have to give him respect for that. And I give him full credit for, for that effort. And also credit for his excellent understanding of Arabic and of uh, English. He has excellent command of the English language and excellent command of Arabic. And he has recognized published works in Arabic and in English. However, uh, there are two problems. One which I would not blame him for and one which he's blameworthy for. The one which he's blameworthy for is that his aqidah was not the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. So he has mistakes in aqidah. In, in, in his understanding of, of Aqidah, he has errors. And the one which he's not blameworthy for, but it's still a criticism, is that the language is extremely difficult to understand because it's written in very old, classical English. Uh, and it's very difficult to understand. So for that reason, I don't recommend uh, Yusuf Ali as a, a go-to tafsir for people. But I do recommend it for the student who wants to compare language of tafsir because he himself has some very uh, very praiseworthy skill in in uh, in understanding some of the meanings of the ayat so in terms of somebody studying translation of the quran i think yeah you have to consider it to be an important resource but i wouldn't recommend people have it in the house or anything as their go-to tafsir your go-to tafsir should be muhsin khan if you find muhsin khan too hard to read sahih international Sahih International is good, but it has its own faults in it. Um, it the English is, is, in my opinion, is not uh, very good in Sahih International. Even though it was written by, uh, I believe, uh, a sister or a number of sisters who English is their native language. I mean, they're, they're American. I mean, they, they, they're reverts to Islam. But I think far too often they follow the literal order of the Arabic words. And he is upon everything or he is over everything competent. And it's like, I, I don't like that. That's not English. It's not good English. And if you wrote it in an English exam, you would fail your exam. It's not good. It's poor. It's a poor uh, use of English language. But I understood why they did it. And I, I don't have any, you know, subhanAllah, may Allah reward them for their efforts. It's an academic criticism. Otherwise, the effort is amazing. The effort that they did is absolutely amazing. Uh, so I have, you know, my criticism should be understood that I'm not like, you know, I'm not criticizing it in a horrible way. I'm just saying that it's like it has a flaw in that sense. And also some of their choice of language is not like I don't think is quite right. Like some of the way they translate the names of Allah and the attributes. I don't think that it's quite, I think using words like competent for Allah. I don't think it's the right word to use in English. So I have some criticisms of that. 
Aqeedah-wise, Muhsin Khan is better. Even though Sahih International, the Aqeedah is generally correct. There are a couple of mulahabat in Aqeedah, a couple of points in Aqeedah which we would criticize, but generally the Aqeedah of Sahih International is okay. Muhsin Khan is better, but the readability of Sahih International is where it stands out. It's very readable, like you can actually read it, whereas Muhsin Khan is very, very hard to read because there's a lot of brackets and, you know, lists and commas and, you know, things going off on tangents. But again, you know, you can't blame them for that. They did it for a reason. So for me, what I do is I join between Sahih International and Muhsin Khan. That's my normal day-to-day -day translation of the Quran is that I will read Muhsin Khan, I'll read Sahih International, and I'll blend them together in a way that I think gives the, the language and gives the aqidah and the meaning in the, right in the right way. But Yusuf Ali, I wouldn't use it on a day-to-day -day basis, but sometimes if I want to see a translation and I, I want to see something a bit more linguistic, you know, uh, then yeah, I would look at Muhsin Khan and uh, you look at Yusuf Ali and there are others. There are others as well by non-Muslims. The one preferred by non-Muslims is actually Arbery. The Arbery was a, is a non-Muslim professor. And what good can there be in a non-Muslim who translates the Quran? But that's a side issue. But Arbery linguistically is very good. You know, I give him credit where credit's due that linguistically Arbery is excellent. And poetically in terms of Balagha and and, and conveying some of the beauty of the language, Arbery is, is very, very good. And generally, a lot of non-Muslims tend to prefer that. But the danger with Arbery is, of course, you're non-Muslim. So he has no amana whatsoever. And there are other translations. There are translations from older than Yusuf Ali, uh, early translations by non-Muslims, and lots of things you can, you know, if you go into studying translations of the Quran, you can look at them. And I myself have started a translation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tawfiq to finish it. But I've started a translation of the Quran which I'm writing for myself, but I'm not writing it from zero. I'm basing it upon the translations that already exist, but selecting the correct wording and trying to improve the quality of the English and stuff like that. And Allah is our general's best. We'll have to deal with the rest on the way out because quarter past we promised to finish the class. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadu an la ilaha illa anta staghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.